good morning to you, church. It's so good to see you. Um, I have a lot of things written in my Bible, but I was meditating on one phrase that I've written down, and I don't have the person's name to give credit to him uh, or her, but I thought it kind of ties this thing in of what we've been talking, the goodness of God and how there's always hope in the walk for hope. And what the words are is there is a window through its glass. I see the history of your presence, the future of uh, my hope. Never have you left me. Never will you forsake me. Those are wonderful words. And I think the older we get, the more we realize just how true they are in the goodness of the Lord. And if there's one thing that we must have to move ahead, it's hope. When a person loses hope, there's an awful lot of things that go on, some dark thoughts, and uh, we want to give people hope and praise the Lord for the hope that we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, as Lisa said, this is uh, part three of our three-week series in uh, John 17, and I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to that chapter, if you have it, John 17. I want to thank Pastor Rob and the elders again for the privilege to uh, stand in this pulpit. Uh, you really are a wonderful congregation. Uh, that's not fluff. I'm just telling you the truth. And uh, you're serious about the things of God, uh, but you can also sit back and laugh a little bit. And it's just nice to have that kind of balance because it gives the pastor a lot more freedom and liberty uh, in, in the pulpit. So thank you for uh, your graciousness. And I know Pastor Rob's looking forward to getting as my wife said this morning, back in the saddle again, and uh, we'll be glad to have him back in, in the pulpit. The key word, and you don't want to miss this because if you do miss it, you're going to miss John 17. The key word is the word glory. It's all about the glory of God. I want to challenge you to think this morning. There's a lot of motivations for doing what's right. There's a lot of motivations for living for the Lord, judgment seat of Christ, the fear of God, uh, the works, etc. But you will find no higher or deeper motivation than simply doing what you do because of the glory of God. And to me, that's what it's all about. And that's what John 17 is all about uh, as well. Now, this prayer, as we have seen, has three movements to it. In verses 1 to 8, Jesus prayed for himself. Key word glory. Five times it's found. Then we move on the verses 9 to 19, and last week we saw Jesus prayed for his apostles. And again, the glory of God is the key. Now today we come to verses 20 to 26, and we see Jesus prayed uh, for his church. So just imagine with me for just one moment, if you can, just sit back and think of this, this uh, potential truth. And it's this, suppose I could say we have a guest with us today, and he's going to come and he's going to lead us in a word of prayer. And he's going to pray for you, your body, your church, your family. And that person with us is none other than the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And down the aisle walks the Lord Jesus. Now just imagine. And as he comes down, he comes behind this pulpit. And he says, would you pray with me? And he lifts up his eyes to heaven. He begins praying. I think every person here, youngest to the oldest, no matter where you are in your status in life, 
I think everyone would be absolutely glued to every word that the Son of God would say. Now, the interesting thing is he's not here in the sense of his bodily form. He is with us, we know. But uh, what we do know is that we can hear his prayer. He prayed it 2,000 years ago. And it's his prayer for Austinville Baptist Church. It's his prayer for you personally and for your family. And so we want to hear what Jesus had on his heart when he could look down the quarters of time, for us now, 2,000 years, and see what was on his heart of what he wanted his people, his church, to be. Robert Murray McShane has always been one of my heroes from early on after I got saved. There was something about him that just fascinated me, intrigued me, whatever you want to say. Every so often I pull the books out and I read his biography because I just want to be refreshed with this man's life. He never saw the age of 30. So at the age of 29, he went to be with the Lord. He only had seven years of ministry. Wasn't a huge church, St. Peter's Church in Dundee, Scotland. And yet he's left an impact, an imprint on the lives of the church throughout Europe and the United States. And it was only really 179 years ago on March 25th that he went to be with the Lord. He wrote these words, and I just love them, and they're on the screen. If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear one million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. And that's what this series is all about. That's why it's called The Unfinished Work of Christ. Because the Lord Jesus Christ, now for 2,000 years, has continued its ministry 24-7 as making intercession for us as our great high priest who prays on our behalf. So this morning we see what's on his heart in verses 20 to 26, and I hope you can follow along in your Bible and uh, three things that I'd like us to see about this prayer. Number one, the first thing he really prays for is spiritual unity that reveals Christ's glory. Spiritual unity that reveals Christ's glory. I'm reading verses 20 to 23. I do not ask for these only. Now you could write in the word apostles right there because that's the these. He's already prayed for them 9 to 19. Now I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you've given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me even as you have loved me. You have loved them even as you have loved me. Now, what about this matter of spiritual unity? What is, what is he talking about? How do we understand that? Number one, I want you to understand spiritual unity, it is not uniformity and it is not union because a lot of people think that's what's happening in John 17 in Jesus' prayer. If you want uniformity, and boy, is uniformity boring too. If you want uniformity, go to your local grocery store and just see a whole aisle of Wheaties cereal. You know, that's, 
pretty boring. So that's not uniform. You want uniformity, go to Paris Island, go to Fort Knox. You've got to have uniformity in the, in the military. Can't have a strong military without it. But that's not what he's talking about. It's not uniformity. Neither is it union. I can remember, interestingly enough, I'm going back to about a year after I got out of the Army, so 60 years ago. And I can remember when I got saved on a Sunday morning church service that God put in my heart, didn't ask for it, it just was there like many of you. Immediately after I was born again, there was a hunger for the word of God. There was a desire to be with God's people. There was a new sensitivity to sin. Uh, there was a, a, a bend in my heart now to pray. And so the following two, three days later on a Wednesday night, back in those days, the way kind of churches normally did things, and they had a Wednesday night midweek prayer service. And so what did I do? I went to, to prayer meeting. And in that church, First Baptist Church of Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania, you got to love Punxsutawney, right? Home of the groundhog. Yeah. If you don't love Punxsutawney, you're a Philistine. You're not an Israelite, okay? So you got to love Punxsy. And uh, I went to the church there. And in that church, the way they did, they had uh, prayer, first of all, and then a pastor normally would give a, a, a message from the Word. And you know what? Well, of course you don't. I was going to say, do you know what passage he opened up to? Now, this is the first sermon I'm going to hear after I was born again. And he said, turn to John chapter 17, verses 20 to 26. So it's this very passage of scripture. I don't remember anything about the message. I remember he read the verses. And then right after reading the verses, here's what he said. Brethren, the ecumenical movement is the answer to the prayer of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, some of you may not even know what the ecumenical movement is. Others, you may not care. But is that what Jesus had in mind in John 17? No, I don't, I don't think it is. But it speaks about people trying to bring about a union of various groups together. Now, if you want to see the greatest monstrosity of a religious union, then you have to go to the last book of the Bible, book of Revelation. And in chapter 17, you will have what is commonly referred to as the one world religion. And then in that one world religion, what do you have? Behind it is Satan, who is called the dragon. Heading up and bringing this all together is the Antichrist and the false prophet. You know, it's amazing how often God operate, uh, that Satan operates under the idea of counterfeit. Because you have one of there as a counterfeit trinity. The dragon, Satan, corresponds to God the Father, the Antichrist. By the word anti means not only against, but it means in the stead of. And the Antichrist puts himself what? In the stead of Jesus Christ, the second person of the trinity. Then you have the false prophet. What's he do? He points everyone uh, to the Antichrist. And he becomes the counterpart, counterfeit of the Holy Spirit of God. What's the Holy Spirit of God do? He glorifies the Lord Jesus Christ. He's pointing people constantly to exalt and love the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you want to see union in its ultimate, that's what you have in Revelation 17. So it's not uniformity and it's not union. So if it's neither of that, then what is this spiritual unity that, that he's talking about? Now, it is my understanding 
that he is not speaking so much about what Pastor Rob spoke about a few weeks ago, moving through Ephesians when he was Ephesians 4, and we, we treat that section kind of like, how can we all get along, you know, and move together uh, as Christ? Uh, that's not what he's talking about here, practical unity. I think what he's talking about is what I would call potential or positional unity, and it begins when a person trusts Christ the Savior, and by the act of the Holy Spirit, he is regenerated. What is regeneration? It's the act of the Holy Spirit whereby he implants new and eternal life to the believing sinner. That's it. A sinner trusts Christ as Savior, and he is born again. He is regenerated. And then when he is regenerated now, he is also baptized by the Holy Spirit, identified by the Holy Spirit, and placed into the body of Christ, which you and I call the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is what forms the basis of the oneness. So it is regeneration that he's really talking about here. Now, just a few matters that I hope clarifies and brings us together on spiritual unity. Number one, in verse 20, notice Jesus links people in the future, that is, those who will, future tense, those who will uh, believe on me in oneness with the apostles. Jesus went to the cross knowing that his work that he came to do would indeed endure. He didn't have a vague idea. He wasn't left wondering, is this church going to be built? Uh, rather, that he knew in one sense, while the world would judge him as not too much of a success, three and a half years ministry, died the death of a common criminal on a Roman cross. They didn't look upon that as much success. But Jesus knew that through his apostles, that he poured his life into for three and a half years, that it would do the work of God through them. Number two, verse 21 tells us that their unity would follow the pattern of the unity of the Godhead. Especially if you read John 17 over again, you'll see that he emphasizes the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. And just as the Father and Son share equality, I and my Father are one, so the ground is level at the foot of the cross. So you see the equality, and yet you see that tremendous uh, love that the Father has for the Son and the Son has for the Father. And in that same pattern, this unity that we have is a result of the work of God in the hearts of his people where he regenerates them and places them into the body of Christ and the cross is level, uh, the, the, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Now, the third thing in verse 22, notice Jesus prayed that the church would be marked by glory. Notice what he says. And the glory which you gave me, so now he's talking to the Father again, the, 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 the glory that you gave me, I have now, he says, given uh, to them, that they may be one just as we are one. So as God the Father shares his glory with his Son, John 17, 5, so Jesus gave glory unto his people. Now, if I ask you, okay, help me out here for a minute. I'm going to say to you a word or two, and I want you to think of what first thing comes to your mind. Don't literally speak out, but if I say this, is what comes to your mind. I say, okay, tell me, what does it look like? You say what? The glory of God. Now, what's that look like to you? 
I think to a lot of people, they might think of the Old Testament, the Shekinah glory, where that glorious, radiant burst of light was so bright that man, he couldn't even uh, behold it. It was so uh, fantastic. But when you think about the glory that the Father gave the Son on earth, the greatest example in which that glory was demonstrated was through a weak, suffering servant, the Lord Jesus Christ. It was glory that ultimately was displayed in the ultimate radical sacrifice of love that Jesus made for us. And just as his true glory was to follow the path of lowly service and obedience and submission, culminating even in the cross, so for us the true glory is in the lowly service wherever it might lead us. So when you think of this spiritual unity, uh, that is an answer to the prayer of Jesus, you see yourself along with the believers for 2,000 years. They are one. They are equal with each other. They are filled with the love of God. And not only but that, but the glory of God uh, is manifested through them. Now let's look at the second thing that Jesus talks about here uh, in his prayer. And that is what we simply call relational love in the truth of Christ. Now listen to these words, verses 20. Uh, three to uh, 25 to 26. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name. And I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. If you trace it through down to verses 23 to 26 in your Bible, you'll see that the word love is used no less than five times. You see it back there in verse 23 at the end, and love them as you love me. Uh, you see it again at the end of the next verse, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. 26, the love which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So five things here about this love matter uh, in, in the truth of Christ. Number one, when we look at the manifestation of God's love, we see that basically, based, the Bible is teaching one thing here, and that is that God is love and that he loves the Son. And he loves the Son with that eternal, infinite, uh, uh, intimate love because God himself is love. He's satisfied in loving. He's fulfilled in loving. God is glorified in loving. We had a uh, our last Thrive meeting Wednesday night, and one of the members asked the question at the end, and they said, uh, you know, I'm just a little confused here, because if you're saying God knew everything that was going to happen in eternity past before he even created the world, and he knew the fall of man, he knew Adam's sin, he knew how sin and its consequence, and then the death of his son. He says, why could God have stopped it? Well, of course. Well, why didn't God stop it? And I thought about that and gave a few answers. Then the more I thought about it, I remember the verse of Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10 came to me. It says, God is the one who made all things, and all things are for his glory. He wanted to have many children share his glory. And as I look at that, that's why we're here. God wanted a family. Why did God want a family? Because God is love. 
You know, there are three words that actually say uh, in, in the New Testament when it says God is something. Not what he's just characterized by, not what his attributes but three times it says God is, God is, God is. And uh, one of those is simply this, God is love. And there was that eternal love in eternity past between the Father, Son, and the Spirit, but they wanted a family. And so as a result of wanting a family, that's where the human race uh, came about. And so we were no accident in this uh, whatsoever. It's because the eternal God is a God of love, and he set out to create sons and daughters that he could eternally love. That's how much he loved you. You were part of that. And then he knew that sin would come. He knew of the fall of man, but he could now show his great mercy, grace, and especially his love. God can't, doesn't manifest his love in creation. His power is, but not his love. Where is God's man as a love manifested the most, the greatest? Romans says, for God commends or proves or declares or makes known his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So when I go to the cross, I see the greatest demonstration of the glory of God in that, that humble, weak, broken body on the cross where all the sins of the world, including yours and mine, were nailed to him. Why? Because God wanted a family. And the only way he could get his family is to have them come through the adoption of sons through the finished work of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. Now, that's the manifestation of God's love. Then we think further in this passage about the measure of God's love. And it's seen in verse 23 that we read a couple of times earlier where we see this, what? That God loves us as much as he loves his own son. Now, if you go back to verse 23, uh, you, you're, you're going to see that. I and them, you and me, that they may become perfect so the world may know that you sent me. Now, catch this. And you love them even as you love me. I have uh, four brothers, two are in heaven, uh, but the one next to me is a retired pastor, a wonderful Bible teacher, pastor at 37 years in one church. But we were starting to talk on this, uh, and I said, John, I said, do you think God loves you and me as much as he loves his own son? He wrote back something, the first, I think, first thing, it's too late for a question like that, or something like that. But we talked for an hour, but she didn't talk, we texted back and forth. Uh, for our, and then, you know, we, we talked about, is there a, are there degrees of God's love? And then we went to the subject that said, do you think God loves you any more now that you're saved than you were when you weren't saved? Um, God so loved the world. Those are lost people. The point is this, though, whatever you get out of that or don't get out of that, the point is God is love. It's who he, he cannot help but love. And that love will never contradict any of his other attributes like holiness, justice, or even wrath. So God has all this together and one will not violate or contradict the other. But it was God's love which sent Christ to die for them. And those who respond to that love at the cross, the warmth of the Father's heart is entered into the believer in the sense of the deepest sort of spiritual communion. The Apostle John was so caught up in this when he was writing his first epistle. He said, behold, 
What manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Isn't that a beautiful verse? Do you ever respond that way? Behold, just taken back with it as were. What manner of love the Father bestowed on us, on me, on you, in order that we might be called the sons of God. And it doth not yet appear what we're going to be, but we know we, when we see him, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And we're going to be with him for all eternity. That's what this prayer of John 17 uh, is all about. And then Jesus had taught his disciples how to pray. How does he begin that prayer? He began praying with them, our Father who art in heaven, our loving Father. Did you know Islam has 99 names for God? And did you know not one of them is Father? They don't have a Father relationship. He's not a loving Father. He's omnipotent. He's a lot of other things. But he's not a God. He, they have no word that is related to what we would call a family relationship. Father, sons, daughters. They just don't have it. But Jesus, because of the cross, says, pray our Father which art in heaven. It's an awesome thought. You know, anybody... We think in their right mind, but we know it's a spiritual situation and only the Holy Spirit can open the mind and heart. Everyone ought to love the Lord Jesus Christ, shouldn't they? They should. Why, why wouldn't you love the Lord? Why wouldn't you gladly invite him as your Savior and your Lord? Because God loves us as he loves his Son. And that's so foreign to a human love. We make one flop after another. We fail one time after another. We're so opinioned, so stubborn, so self-willed, so selfish. And what? God just keeps on loving us. He just keeps on pouring and showering his love on us. And we need to appropriate that truth. That eternal, infinite, and unconditional love will never let you go if you've embraced the Son of God. And you are as secure in heaven. Now catch this. Because I'm sure, and I don't know who you are, or whether you're watching online. But if you have truly trusted Christ, I know a lot of people, and they've wrestled with the thought of the future, and am, am I really totally secure in heaven? You are so secure that Paul said in Ephesians, you're right now seated in the heavenlies. That's your position in Christ. You're already glorified. It's all finished as far as God's concerned. He's not limited by time. He's the eternal God. And you can never, because of his great love, you can never lose that eternal relationship that was established when you were born again of this Holy Spirit. Remember the old hymn? Oh, love that will not let me go. What beautiful words they are to that. I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe, that in thine ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. So the Lord is praying, and he prayed 2,000 years ago for that spiritual unity. 
for that relational love that we might appropriate that and see that how the father loves the son the son loves the father and how they love you and how they love me the last part of this prayer verse 24 eternal destiny through the prayer of christ eternal destiny through the prayer of christ listen to these words father i desire that they also that is you and me whom you have given me, we've seen that five times already in John 17, you're the love gift of the Father to the Son, that those you have given me may be with me where I am. Now don't get confused, he's not talking about where he's standing there in Jerusalem, already he's projecting to the eternal future into heaven. And it's like he's speaking as though he's in heaven already, ascended to the Father. I desire thee also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. Why? To see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. And so this is the final uh, portion, the final request that the Lord Jesus Christ makes. It's the promise to everyone who has been redeemed, everyone who's been justified, everyone who belongs to Christ, that we will one day in heaven be in heaven with him for all eternity. Now, you know what the amazing thing is? It's not a struggle in our heart that I want to go to heaven or that you want to go to heaven. I mean, if there really is a heaven and a hell, and there is, and you're going to spend one of be in one of those two places for eternity, who wouldn't want to say, I want to go to heaven? But the amazing thing is that Jesus wants us with him in heaven. He knows all about us. You have no idea what a lousy person I am deep in my heart. I'm not what I used to be. Thank God. I'm not what I wanted to be. And I'm thanking God I'm not what I used to be. And that's the way we're all growing, aren't we? But who would stand and say, I have no flaws or failures? Up and down, so opinionated, so sinful. And yet Jesus says, I want them with me for all of eternity. And if you struggle with self-worth or self-image or you've been told you're not worth much, God says you are worth more than the whole world. What shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for the world? You're worth more than all the riches of this entire world, and you need to feast on this truth. Now, what gives us value is not intrinsic to us. It's not because there's something special about who I am or you are. It's because we are the, in eternity past, the Father's chosen love gift that he gave to his son. You are the love gift of the father to the son, and he chose you in eternity past. And Christ died for our sins, what? Before the foundation of the world. Now let me bring it down to this. How many times have you gone to a store or somewhere and you bought something, you think, well, I, th I think I'd like to do this. You know, I'd like to buy this. You buy a new shirt. You buy a new blouse. You buy a, a new this and new that, okay? You buy a new car. It's got to be one of the most depressing days that I would point in my life, the time I bought that new car. I was totally depressing, you know. You long this for this car, and then you get it, and you walk out, 
and then you're thinking of the monthly payments for the next 36 months. And then you know, then you start driving the car and what happens? It's just like the former car, it's no big deal. I remember that, I had a 48 Chevrolet that I had, I remember getting the brand new, first brand new car, 1966 Chevy 2. Man, was that a cool car. I had it one day and I'm thinking, why did I buy this? Three years later, I did the same stupid thing. I moved up, I bought a Chevrolet Malibu. And uh, you know, and, and, Donna, and it, just, it doesn't mean that much to you. But what gives something really worth is when a person that you love with all your heart, and they love you and you know it, the most intimate family relationship, husband, wife, parent, child, whatever it might be, and then that person gives you a gift from their heart. And sometimes it's just a little Mother's Day card that says, Mommy, I love you, or Daddy, or whatever it is. It has no intrinsic value, but you treasure that. You even put it away. And every so often, I've got a file. I, I've got a file. It's called my encouragement file. If I get down, and I don't get down very often, honest to goodness, but if I do, I pull out some of these things from the past. And all of a sudden, it gives me perspective. Because somebody who loved me expressed that love and gave it to me, and that's what gave it such worth. I was sharing with the 830 congregation in Maryland, I'll say it's about 10 years ago. I was speaking up at a missions conference in Toronto, Canada, and Meryl and I came back home, and as soon as I drove in the driveway, I saw that the door was slightly open. And I said, I don't leave the door open when I go to Toronto, Canada. So I knew something was up, so I gingerly walked in. And, sure, and my older daughter, okay, uh, it was, I should have said, get thee, get thee behind me, Donna, but I didn't. I listened to her badger me month after, Daddy, you need a big screen HD TV. I think I still had a little black and white 22 inch or something. I don't know what it was. But anyway, I went out and got the big screen TV and uh, had it maybe five days. And I walked in that door, and guess what the first thing I saw was missing? Big screen TV. How long, somebody had been broken in the house, you know. And, uh, but you know what, honest to goodness, I think it took me probably a maximum of 18 seconds to get over that stuff. It really did, it was just stuff. Can be replaced. And I remember talking to the police sergeant after he came to the house, and I said, they probably needed it more than I did. I said, honest. But I said, I'll tell you what, if you find out who it was, I'd love to come visit him in jail. And I would like to tell him how much God loves them, that I forgive them, and it's no big deal. You must have been mighty desperate to do what you did. To do what you did, you had to be a pretty desperate person. You know what I couldn't get over? It was when I went up to the uh, jewelry box, and my wife's, and they're just empty. They say they come in, they bring a pillowcase, and they just dump it in because they're in a hurry and take it out, then they discard what they don't like. But I had a pair of cufflinks Daddy gave me. I love those cufflinks. I used to wear them almost every Sunday. And they were personal. Dad's love for me. And they had his handprint on them. That's what you can't replace. What made those cufflinks so special? I don't think they cost a whole lot. I don't know. It was Dad gave them to me. It was his love gift to me. That's who you are. As a son, as a daughter of God, that's who you are. You are the father's love gift to his son. And that should just give you such an incredible satisfaction 
And then Jesus says, I want you to share with me in all my eternal future. I want you to be there right there with me. Why does he do that? Number one, as we already saw, that he wants us to see that love of God constantly. Father, son, son, father, father, son to us. And we're caught up in the middle, thankfully. And the second reason is seen in the purpose of the clause in verse 24, where Jesus prayed, I desire that they be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me. My glory which you have given me. He wants us to see his glory, to behold his glory, and that glory will be manifest for all eternity. And so every time a saint of God leaves this world, please think of it as an answer to Jesus' prayer. And I want to tell you something, and I know this is true. There's no person in heaven who would ever come back to this sin-cursed earth if he had a choice or she. Never. Yeah, we weep when we lose. We weep not as others who have no hope, but we grieve. Well, we ought. I remember my sister, I don't know how many times she said to me as a widow, how she said to me, you know, thing that gives me the great, that just keeps me going on, is Jack would never want to come back. He's sharing in that eternal glory. And it makes such a difference when we have that hope. So your eternal destiny, it's based upon and it's secure because the price that Jesus paid, his precious blood, his life. It's secure because of the promises Jesus made. I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. I'm going to the Father, but I'm coming back. And if I come back, I'll receive you to myself. Why? That where I am, what class? There ye may be also. That's the promises. And there's many, many more. And so we're eternally secured. The price he paid, the promises he made. And now this prayer that Jesus prayed, that they shall be with me and behold my glory. We're going to close this out now, and we've been thinking on the glory of Jesus. And it's so enthralling, it's so vast, we can't even scratch the surface. But that glory is so, so great that it will occupy the attention of God's people for eternity. Now, we're not going to be sitting around, you know, with a strumming on a harp and just beholding, sitting in church and beholding glory. We're going to do a lot of stuff. Heaven's going to be wonderful. I'm going to hit, be able to golf and hit a ball right down the middle, about 240. <laughs> I'm not going to mention any names, but they'll, they'll have to keep it on a scorecard too. <laughs> but think about this. Because of his glory, John wrote this in Revelation 21. We won't read it all. I saw no temple. This is your future. This is where you and I are going to live someday. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. Never seen another sunshine or the moon. For the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. So you walk into a dark room in your home, but you know where all the switches are. What do you do? You go and you switch the lamp on and the light comes on. 
The light flows through the lamp. That's what heaven is. The glory of God flowing through the Lord Jesus Christ. And by his light with all the nations walk, the kings of the earth will bring their glory. Its gates will never be shut by day. There'll be no night there. They'll bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. The challenge I leave with you this morning is make the glory of God your chief ambition in life. Ask God to give you that sense of motivation to the glory of God. Paul talks about that in 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into this likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And we don't have to wait to get to heaven to experience something of the glory of God on earth. Because John 17 helps us understand Jesus' prayer is that as God gave him glory, Jesus is giving us glory. And now he wants that glory to shine around us wherever we go as we are sent into the world and then the world will look and they'll see the genuine believer and then Lord willing that person who is sent will see others respond to the message of the glory of God. I close the message with Samuel Rutherford, one of the great Scottish reformers who stood firmly against the persecution involved in the King of England's attempt to stamp out the evangelical faith. They say he was probably the second most influential Scotsman in the Reformation of the 16th and 17th century, only second to John Knox. His, his sermons usually dealt around the theme of death, heaven, and of course the glory of Christ. But he was placed in prison just before his, his death and he was summoned by the king to appear in London to answer charges of heresy. And then you can see up on the screen what the message was that Rutherford sent back. Go and tell your master that I have a summons from a higher court. And ere this message reaches him, I'll be where few kings or great fold ever come. Shortly after that, all that he preached about became that sudden reality. Can you imagine, that split second, you close your eyes, take your last breath, and immediately you're absent from the body, present with the Lord, and the glory of God is around you and through you for the rest of eternity. A modest woman by the name of Ann Cousy studied the life of this great man, and she found that his greatest motivations and writings were on the glory of God. One of the hymns which speaks of that was written by Rutherford in prison. Listen to just two of the stanzas. The sands of time are sinking. The dawn of heaven breaks. The summer morn I've sighed for. The fair sweet morn awakes. Dark, dark has been the midnight. Some of you came in here, but out there it's dark. It's a dark time. We go through those. Dark, dark has been the midnight, but day spring is at hand, and glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. O Christ, he is the fountain, the deep, sweet well of love. The streams on earth I've tasted, more deep I'll drink above. There's an ocean fullness, his mercy, mercy does expand. And glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. And that's going to be our home forever.
We started this series a couple weeks ago quoting John Knox on his deathbed when he said to his wife, Margaret, go read where I first cast my anchor. She knew exactly where to go and she brought his Bible and she opened it to John 17 where John cast his anchor at first. I want to challenge you with the idea it's a good place for you to cast your anchor for the summer and for the rest of your life. The glory of our great God, shall we pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your amazing grace, your great love, your eternal glory that you share with us. The Father in the Son, in the Father, and we in him, and the glory he gave to his Son, the Son gives to us. I pray that some who have never been born of the Spirit and regenerated to join this heavenly throng would trust Christ, whether online or in this auditorium. And for those of us who know him, dear God, I pray that you would help us to enter into that sense of presence of your glory, that it might be our chief ambition and motivation in life. In Jesus' name, amen.